I'm Philippe de Montebello, and it is my immense pleasure to welcome you once more to the picture Conversations with Aquavella Galleries. This episode of the Picture Podcast centers on arguably the most influential artist of the 20th century, Pablo Picasso. Over the course of his long career, the Spanish board artist helped shape the very course of modern art. He was prolific in a wide range of mediums, from painting and sculpture to ceramics and printmaking, but a new exhibition at Aquavella Galleries in New York shines a light on Picasso's passion for drawing, which served as the foundation of his practice over the many stages of his protean career. Exhibiting over 80 drawings spanning seven decades, this new exhibition includes works in an array of mediums, including charcoal, crayon, colored pencil, collage, graphite, gouache, ink, pastel, and watercolor, all showcasing the artist's lifelong quest to innovate and experiment, and his virtuosic ability to switch between styles, techniques, and mediums. Recorded live at Aquavella Galleries in New York, today's podcast is hosted by gallery director Michael Findlay in conversation with Picasso experts Olivier Bergren and Christine Poggi, who help us consider drawing as the foundation of Picasso's singular practice across seven decades of stylistic development. On behalf of Michael, Christine, and Olivier, welcome once again to the picture. So, drawing sometimes thought to be secondary to painting and sculpture, and I think many artists draw as a preliminary to making paintings and sculptures, almost as part of a planning process. And what I hope this exhibition does is establish beyond any doubt that for Picasso, drawing was a, a primary medium with which he made masterworks that are unique, complete, and expressive and powerful as any of his paintings. Olivier, in your essay for this exhibition's catalogue, you suggest Picasso's attraction to drawing was in part that it allowed for experimentation. Can you elaborate on that? First, I would say that Picasso grew up in uh, the late 19th century. His father was a painter and a successful art teacher. Uh, so Picasso had a very conventional education in the sense that he started his trade, so to say, by drawing and again in a very academic fashion and that involved copying plaster casts doing all these things which were part of the training in the 19th century and very very soon he excelled at this medium and he could do just about anything at an early age and he experimented a great deal with drawings and then he was attracted to a number of movements in the late 19th century, such as the symbolist uh, art that he saw in Barcelona, but also in other parts of the world. In Paris, when he came to France in the early 20th century, and he always retained a love of drawing throughout his life to his dying days. So for me, drawing is a little bit uh, like a, a leitmotif, like a thread running through his life and career. But he also very quickly uh, noticed that drawing could be used for a number of different purposes. So it was not just an academic discipline, a way 
of seizing reality, but also a way of creating a different reality in other media. So even if we accept the definition of drawing as such, uh, works on paper, with a pencil, with ink, with something that is not oil paint, uh, nonetheless it spills over into, into other territories. And that is what is interesting in Picasso's work, that drawing can become sculpture, a sculpture can have qualities that relate to two-dimensional surfaces. And Picasso, who has an incredible memory, he retains everything. He's the ultimate sponge. He goes back to certain themes. He uses drawing as a tool to advance a number of different narratives. And I feel that in Picasso's work, the borders, the frontiers between what is drawing, what is painting, uh, what is sculpture, not as clearly delineated as in the work of, of other artists. And that to me is visible in this exhibition at Aquavella Galleries in the sense that we have uh, a marvelous group of, uh, of pre-Cubist works leading up to the Demoiselle d'Avignon, which were painted in 1907, the famous painting now at MoMA. And that is to say that these works have strong linear features, but they are also very, very sculptural. So in them, we can already uh, sense something very, very sculptural. And that's one of many illustrations of what Picasso is able to do with a medium that then spills over into other ones. So you mentioned his great early skill, and maybe it's not too much to compare him to Ingres and Leonardo in his skill with the pencil, with the pen. In your essay, Christine, you suggest a conscious effort on his part to de-skill his hand quote, in favor of imaginative approaches. With the possible exception of when he was inventing cubism with Brock, it seems to me that Picasso's line is almost indelibly his autograph. W would you agree with that? I think that if you look at many Picassos, which I've done in my life, it's been a pleasure to do it, you do begin to sense a kind of incisiveness in his line. So I would agree in general, although the styles range so tremendously that you have to be able to encompass that variability. But what I meant in saying that was that sometimes he deliberately chose to use a technique where you weren't going to achieve a great deal of nuance. You might have conceptual nuance, imaginative complexity, such as using scissors as a drawing tool and creating very simple outlines of guitars or pipes in the collages that do all kinds of interesting things, figure ground reversals, they do many amazing things, but there isn't the mark of the pencil. So he's, in a sense, restricting himself to a tool that might seem surprising. Or another example for me is when he takes up some wires. He does this in the summer in Dinar, and he is able to twist these wires around themselves, around another armature, and create drawing in space. Again, not with a pencil or a pen, but with this wire that he's manipulating. So exploring all kinds of ways of making lines, making shapes that don't always involve the traditional media, although obviously he is a master of those as well. Right, yeah. Now, his paintings for me, have always been powerful physical objects, things. But the power of the drawings in this exhibition seem to come from his expressions of and about the human condition. 
Is it too simplistic to suggest that when he paints, he's making a thing, and when he draws, he's telling a story? Well, I think I wouldn't necessarily make that distinction because I see a kind of fluidity that uh, Olivier Vergrun was also talking about, a fluidity that travels between the drawings and paintings, between the drawings and sculptures, and those boundaries are not always respected in the traditional sense. What you do see sometimes in the drawings is a working out of ideas, and sometimes there's a greater narrative. There might be experimentation with more backgrounds, more figures, some kind of narrative reason why these figures are there will be indicated. And sometimes he will remove the background or change the background to make it more indefinite. The figures become abstracted. And in the final work, sometimes there's a greater purity, a sense of timelessness, perhaps, a kind of distillation down to some essence that he's seeking which makes it fascinating to look at the drawings because you see storylines that he either abandoned, but you see the origin of an idea. You see it play out. You see other possible alternatives. And then you see him select something in a painting, but I've come to see that one work not so much as definitive, but as part of a broader series of possible outcomes in which the drawings themselves are their own works and their own instantiations of an idea. So, and then often he does works after a major work. So even after the Demoiselle, there are, will be continuing studies of some of the figures and so forth. So the idea doesn't stop when he gets to what we think of as the definitive work. It continues and it may morph into another so-called definitive work. For me, there, there's more of a continuity. W- would you agree? Yes, I agree with Christine. Since you, since you mentioned Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, there are numerous sketches leading up to it and uh, trying to come to grips with uh, five figures in a in a monumental composition in a in a manner and a style uh, that shocked many people at the time so of course uh, drawing is a tool a working tool with many many sketches towards a finished work because so Uh, uses these in order to advance other ideas that might crop up in other works at a later stage. So there's there's a lot of back and forth between periods, between styles, between mediums. Uh, what I would say, Michael, about the later works, of which there are some marvelous examples in the in the exhibition, is that Picasso produced uh, numerous sketchbooks, over 200 in his lifetime, And especially in his later days, these uh, sketchbooks or drawings become uh, visual diaries, so to say. So it is a little bit like having a notebook. These are notes to himself, his own imaginary that is being pursued, theme and variation. So there are certain themes, especially in the late work, the musketeers, the, the Baroque uh, scenes, the, the, the brothel scenes. Uh, the uh, resurgence of antique themes, when I say antique, uh, Greek and Roman antiquity uh, mostly, uh, all these things uh, become a kind of uh, personal universe that uh, Picasso pursues again and again away from the pressures of the art market because at that time in his in his life, in the 60s, he didn't sell a great deal. He produced a lot of prints and etchings that were actively sought by collectors, uh, but he mostly painted and drew for himself. So there is a personal side to the late work that is really, in my view, uh, relates 
to his own environment, his own fears, his own uh, love, uh, his sense of the love of life that also crops up. So let's say I simplify here a little bit, but the in, in his early days, uh, Picasso was shaped, like many artists of that generation, by the ideas of Friedrich Nietzsche, and we we don't seem to or don't usually think of uh, a Spanish artist in connection with a with a German uh, uh, philosopher of the 19th century. But uh, the emphasis between uh, Apollo on the one side, this kind of lightness of being, serenity, and then the the dark forces of Bacchus of Dionysus, which are this dark streak that emerges again and again in Picasso's work. And I find in these late drawings, those two elements are present in different forms, but they are part of an imaginary in Picasso's work that is not necessarily to the completion of paintings. Yes, I'm fascinated that you brought up the late work and the drawings and the paintings. As I'm old enough to remember the uh, negative reception that Picasso's late paintings received at least in in the United States when they were shown and they were thought to be crude in execution vulgar in subject matter now perhaps we can see they might have been way ahead of their time but his works on paper at the time were still very very powerful I mean the paintings now we see as powerful I think the drawings always had a kind of of power uh, of expression that was not at all crude in any sense. Would you agree? I think it wasn't crude in the sense that when he was crude, he meant to be. It was deliberate, you know. So sometimes I think he seeks out in a sophisticated way an effect of what we might think of as crudeness or the grotesque. I think there are times when he's trying to get away from any veneer of traditional beauty. He's trying to do something disruptive even vulgar, but it's a decision, you know. It's not that he somehow has fallen into that and can't get out of it. So I think he he knows what he's doing in certain subjects. He's trying to express certain ideas. Certainly the nude, you know, which I think tends to arouse objections when you see a nude that's greatly distorted or has been turned into a grotesque figure. That's always been... A theme that he was very attracted to and his works obviously range from the most classicizing beauty to scenes of violence to distorted figures to the grotesque so I think the full range is there and there's a range of emotion a range of possibility and I don't see them as crude in, in some negative sense. You had talked in your essay Olivia about Picasso as a trickster it seems to me that there, there are many disguises that he's worn almost literally uh, throughout his, his life. Even the disguises of, of, of style from the highly classical works of the early 20s, rather reminiscent even of, of Renoir to as the ones that we have just discussed. Um, and again, to reference the late works, there is a final drawing in this exhibition that he drew of himself portrait from probably a year before he died in which he's looking extremely frail and full of fear. So this is, in a sense, a a disguise that might also reveal some inner reality. Is that a theme throughout his work? 
I think so. What I might say, uh, thinking about that very powerful late drawing, that portrait, funny enough, it reminds me of, of another artist, another giant of the 20th century, whom one doesn't usually associate with Picasso, but they were friends, and that is Paul Klee. If you look at the very late drawings, uh, autobiographical uh, portraits of uh, of Clay that he did just before he died in 1940, he was very ill, had cancer. Uh, there is a similar visionary quality in these uh, late late works by Clay, as in uh, this marvelous Picasso drawing that closes the exhibition. What what I will say in more general terms, and you you may or may not agree with me, is that. Um, you mentioned the, the, the trickster or the juggler, so Picasso who portrayed himself in the guise of a harlequin already in the Lapin Gilles, the famous painting now at the Metropolitan Museum from 1904, that uh, Picasso was a juggler of styles and manners and he liked to play one manner against another. And you see it very, very clearly in the so-called classical period of the 1920s when on the same sheet of paper sometimes he would execute a ballerina in a very very classical style though it's never quite as classical as we think there's always an element of distortion an element of disfigurement or whatever you want to call it in my view or and then next to that ballerina there might be a cubist still life so so there is this juggling thing where Picasso I think is different and very different from his contemporary and rival Francis Picabia um, and actually I'm referring to Picabia because not that long ago there was an exhibition putting side by side Picasso and Picabia. Picabia is also a juggler of styles, but he's, in my view, uh, quite dispassionate in his, in his process. The, that he holds, Picabia holds all these different manners, all these different ways of executing works of art at a distance. I think that Picasso is emotionally involved and he's involved in what he does. He is a magician, a trickster, a conductor, whatever you want to call it, but he's always somehow present and uh, invested in, uh, in what, he, what he paints or what he draws. And especially in these drawings, you feel this kind of uh, connection, this way of trying to control the world around him. So some of these may be sketches for other works and therefore they are you know, tools like, like any other working tools. But more often than not, this idea to, to, to control the world around him is something that I find very, very striking in Picasso as a draftsman. The idea of him working out ideas and also his relationship with other artists is fascinating. In this exhibition, there are two pairs of works that struck me very strongly. One is two portraits of Dora Maar. One is uh, simply black and white and the other is color where she is uh, seated on a throne. It's uh, somewhat spiky. It's probably how he's beginning to develop his idea of the full face and the, and the profile. And there's also uh, in another gallery upstairs there are two portraits of Francois Gillot asleep. Again, one of them is, uh, is, is a line drawing and the other is much, has much more chiaroscuro as, as, as color. The line drawing of Francois Gillot seems to me to be very much a either a, 
uh, a call out or a challenge or an homage to Matisse. He's sort of, well, I can do this too. Do you want to say anything about either of those as pairs? I think you can see him responding to other artists constantly. Early on, it surprised me how much he responded to Ang, for example. But Ang was, of course, a great draftsman. And there were many bizarre distortions in Ang's work if you really begin to look at the quality of line and the, the elongation of a woman's torso or spatial irregularities. And, and he, I think, was very attracted. Obviously, Matisse is another person he wants to rival, get inspiration from, challenge, rework. It, it encompasses many, many different qualities. It's important to realize that his feelings for a particular person or event are not expressed in a kind of naive, immediate way, but filtered through or channeled through his understanding of style and his relationship to other artists who may have executed a similar kind of subject or used line in a particular way. So, you know, when he, he does a, a beautiful portrait of Olga in, in 1917, which is often compared both to Matisse and to Ingres. So he's working through models sources of inspiration, rivaling other artists who he respects, but always with a little twist, right? It's never a complete imitation. It's never simply, I can do that too, which he probably could, or, but there's always some stamp of Picasso coming through, a different kind of distortion. Sometimes you feel it's a parody. You know, there's something distorted and strange he will do something that looks like a beautiful classical drawing, but the lighting will be all wrong, or the shading overruns the boundaries of the drawing. There'll, there'll be something spatially strange. So he will, yes, work with these sources of inspiration or all the artists around him, and he may go back in time, too. He may go back to Delacroix or mm -hmm. someone from another age, even as he's expressing emotions about something that might be of interest to him at that time in his life. For me, the, it's not a purely biographical statement. I wouldn't think that would be a sufficient frame with which to understand him. John Richardson's great work aside, do, do you think that generally today we pay too much attention to his life and not enough attention to the things he actually made? So that's a long and difficult and complex question and I have no immediate answers. I'm I'm a big fan of John Richardson. I, I love his work, uh, his biography, unfinished at the time of his of his death, uh, is a, a, a monument, so to say. I think that there are some instances in which a biographical approach can be very very fruitful and uh, is entirely justified. And there's other moments when I feel it's not quite as uh, as relevant. And there's many art historians who take a different view. There are so many different Picassos. We have the right to view Picasso through very many different lenses. And I don't think that there's only the formal or, or the biographical uh, a filter. There's many other filters we could approach through iconography, by which I mean we look at certain themes that are inherited from the great masters that uh, Christine Poggi just uh, referred to, but also a tradition of Western painting. There, there are so many different Picassos. In recent years, uh, the, the book on Picasso that impressed me the most it was written by someone who takes a view very different from Richardson's, and that is the British art historian T.J. Clarke, 
who wrote a book called Picasso and Truth. Uh, he brings together a lot of material, but he shapes and creates a Picasso that is very, very different from the biographical Picasso of John Richardson. But I think that uh, if you read one book and the other, and some many great uh, studies about uh, Cubism, exhibition catalogues, all this material has to come together because Picasso is such a gigantic figure bring together the entire history of Western art in so many ways and a very long and prolific life that the more material, perhaps the better. Uh, not everything that's written about Picasso is necessarily on the same level, far from it. But he lends himself to a number of different views and you see it in his own pronouncements, in his own writings, that he likes to contradict himself again and again. So he may say something to one onlooker or one friend, and then the next day he may say the exact opposite. Uh, there is also this this way that he likes to um, to joke and uh, also provoke others. I think it's very difficult to synthesize all these approaches into one, but I'm very grateful that there are these different strands and these different ways of looking at uh, Picasso's work. From a almost, perhaps from a, a market point of view, he had a prodigious output. I mean, there were sometimes two, three, four paintings a day. N not all were the best. I mean, he was quite capable of, I think, uh, dashing something off after lunch. And it was okay. And he let it out. I'm not sure he did the same with works on paper. Was he more careful to edit those or to edit what? floated into the market. It seems that I've seen fewer weak works on paper than paintings. So in the late 20s, I think around 1927, uh, Paul Rosenberg, his dealer at the time, uh, did an exhibition, a groundbreaking exhibition, that had nothing but drawings. And uh, there were hundreds of drawings then, if I remember correctly. And that was a revelation for very, very many people who saw the show. It also encouraged Picasso to continue with a, with a practice to put drawings on the market again and again. But I will tell you a little anecdote. Uh, my father, who was an art dealer, a publisher, Heinsberg Ruhn, in Paris in the late 40s, early 50s, met Picasso uh, through the Dada founder and poet Tristan Tzara. So Tristan Tzara introduced uh, Picasso to my father. They started to collaborate together and that was the beginning of a, of a long association that culminated with the publication of a series of illustrated books. But uh, again and again, my father would visit uh, Picasso in the south of France, various houses, in the 50s and 60s and again and again this is a game that Picasso entertained not just with my father but with some of the guests whose eye he he respected he would line up a series of paintings and uh, Picasso as we know very often worked uh, around certain themes and then there were variations different paintings often executed in a very short period of time around the same subject, let's say, les déjeuners. So these are these uh, scenes of women sunbathing or having lunch, uh, picnicking uh, in the open. 
and many, many others. And so Picasso would line up these paintings in his studio and then he would ask my father, well, which is the best one, which is the weakest one, etc., etc. And then if, if my father had the correct answer, because there was a correct answer, then of course he would be invited again at a future time for lunch or breakfast or dinner if he had somehow succeeded in this test uh, because he liked to test his guests again and again. And so this was a game that was a little bit mischievous, but that Picasso liked. So he paid a great deal of attention to which paintings had to be included in exhibitions and were sold subsequently. So he was, as many artists are not, he was a good critic of his own work. Good in the sense that your father's choice of the best and Picasso's choice of the best could match and they would not have been seen from different perspectives for different reasons. I think that we would have a lot of different perspectives and also we have the, we have the luxury of time and we have the historical yes. uh, uh, vision now. That, but at the time, there, there were certain... There was a certain way of looking at things, and uh, to mention another one of Picasso's great friends, Douglas Cooper, who then rebelled against Picasso towards the end of his life because he didn't like the very, very late works. Uh, but Douglas Cooper, who was an English, uh, Australian English art historian, critic, and collector, it was it was very, very similar. There was this kind of interchange. So Picasso had a court, like an inner court of. Uh, uh, dealers, uh, critics, uh, writers like Pierre Dex, for example, who, who kind of um, exchanged ideas with him, but uh, Picasso could also be very, very flighty and change his mind very easily from one day to the next. With regard to the, to the market, I think that we cannot separate this question that you ask, Michael, without referring to the estate, uh, because obviously he sold a great deal during his lifetime, as I mentioned before, towards the end of his life, uh, his principal dealer, Galerie Leris, these were the heirs of uh, Kahnweiler, his, one of his first dealers and his great dealer during the days of uh, Cubism um, with Vollard. Uh, so Vollard and Kahnweiler were the two great dealers in the early days and Leris came much later, but they were the successors to Kahnweiler. There were exhibitions of paintings from time to time, but there was also a lot of printmaking. And so many of the drawings, many of the works in paper were part of the estate. And so many of them uh, still are unpublished or little known, or there's a huge amount of work that did not reach the market. Some of it is owned uh, by the Picasso Museum in Paris. So that has been a very good source of dissemination. Other works are... Uh, owned by the artist's heirs and uh, dealers, etc., etc. So, so there's there's a great deal of work which still hasn't hasn't been seen. To to add to this, I have a close association with a with a Picasso museum in Paris, and they have over two hundred thousand documents, letters, scraps of paper very few of which have been digitized. They are now in the process of starting uh, digitizing. 200,000 documents. Picasso is here to stay, I think. So there's a lot more to find out. There may be more to see. When you were kind enough, Christine, to, to look at the works that we 
a borrowing for this exhibition and write the essay. Is there anything that you hadn't seen or that surprised you? Was was there anything that you want to note particularly? The selection was really excellent, and I was delighted when I saw how the range of works, how many works I would be able to choose from to write about. I like to get very involved in particular works and dive into them a little more deeply. Several of the drawings actually related to the two nudes and eventually to the Demoiselle d'Avignon, which I have looked at before, but to see them again and to focus on them because now I can look at them in the light of writing an essay. So I think about them much more. And certain moves that Picasso made combining profile and three-quarter views and how he did it, which is something that's been discussed. It's not an unknown quantity. But being able to look more closely and really see, and then go back and go through and see that some of these techniques had begun to emerge even in 1905, even much earlier. And it's really astonishing to see certain works predicting later works once I'd focused on a particular aspect. So I think... That was the pleasure for me, was looking very closely at a number of works. And I tried to choose ones I haven't talked about before. There's a couple that I have, but mostly works that I have not really addressed, even though I've written on related works. So that was a pleasure just to extend my thinking about them. And because they're drawings, to link them to other drawings and to see connections between drawings that I hadn't fully understood before. So I think just seeing more works connected, the, the works leading up to the two nudes, it is astonishing. I had looked a couple of years ago at some drawings at the Art Institute of Chicago and hadn't realized that the nude I was looking at was related to the two nudes. But in working on this project, I began to put those figures together into a kind of family of forms. So yes, it, it was great to, to do that work and get a fuller understanding of certain episodes. To be able to make the connections, because it's all one one brain, one mind, one hand, <laughs> many decades, seven decades. I love all these connections, and one of the great strengths of the exhibition is that there, there are these very coherent, cohesive groups of works, which allow us to, to, to really sink into this uh, multifaceted universe of, uh, of Picasso's. I've always had a great love an interest in um, uh, Picasso's so-called classical period. And I say so, so-called so because the, the classicism of, of Picasso is a, is a very complex and vexed one. As Christine Poggi said, there is no such thing as a real classical drawing by Picasso, with one possible exception, which is actually here in New York at the Metropolitan Museum. It's a, it's a portrait of Guillaume Apollinaire, from 1916, in which he really tries to copy the manner of Ingres. He does it in such a way that, uh, apart from the subject matter, you, you, you would think it's a, it's a drawing by Ingres. But this, this period of, of classicism I find so, so interesting because there's so many different things coming into the, into the picture or into the drawing in terms of how he uses the line, uh, how the line is sometimes very, very light and then more forceful. There's breaks of the line. There's, there's so many different things that come into play and uh, a level of complexity that uh, I find endlessly inspiring. And in this context, 
uh, I was I was surprised to see a work I had never ever seen before, which is a portrait of Yvon Helft. So these people, the Helfts, were the the business partners of uh, Paul Rosenberg. Rosenberg was Picasso's art dealer at the time, and that drawing done in a in a classical manner, but again one that subverts the classical mode, rather rather stiff. Uh, he's seen in a dressed formally in an armchair, but with a, a quasi photographic way of taking in. Uh, the subject matter, just focusing on certain elements and not on others. So there's a way that Picasso is incredibly choosy about what what he represents at the expense of other details that are left out. Photographs were, were a big tool, an important tool for him. That I find very, very inspiring. And again, going through the classical period, the variation, the, the different modes that uh, he has to address various subject matters again and again. I have to say, for my sake, that one of the wonderful things about doing an exhibition like this, not only seeing works from private collections that may only be glimpsed for a few weeks from museums that not everybody can visit all the time, is that it brings me together with people who have the eloquence and expertise to inform me and to inform our listeners about a a very, very vital aspect of, I think you said, Titan, a great artist. I mean, one whose greatness cannot be exaggerated. Thank you, our listeners for joining us in this episode of The Picture, Conversations with Aquavella Galleries. Follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our email newsletter to keep up to date on exhibitions and artist news. Be sure to subscribe to The Picture Podcast to hear other episodes in the series featuring artists, curators, journalists, and collectors. For Michael Finley, Christine Poggi, and Olivia Bergren, and from all of us at Aquabella Galleries, thank you for listening.